0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles. We're going to spend our time this morning in Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 19. And if this is your first time here with us, whether you're in the room or watching online, welcome home. We're going to take a step away from Colossians this week to have an important discussion as a church. So let's imagine we rewound the clock to one year ago. One year ago, there was about five cases in the entire country of the United States. When it came to COVID. And imagine we were gathering around a table, maybe we we're sitting around a fully packed restaurant, we're not social distancing, nobody's thinking about masks, and we're discussing things that are gonna unfold over the next year. But imagine that we knew everything then that we know right now about what would happen with this pandemic the number of people infected, the number who would lose their lives, the economic turmoil it would create. The many months that we wouldn't be able to gather as a church, the the fact that we wouldn't all be ready to come back, the fact that there's really no end in sight to when this thing will finally finish and things will get back to normal. If we were sitting there at the table and we knew everything then that we know now, think about this question. If we knew all that, how do you think that would affect our budget as a church? How do you think that would affect the percent of giving that we would have as a congregation to have all of this transpire over the course of the year? Well, this is a conversation I've been having with our staff over the last couple of weeks, as well as our personnel committee, our finance committee, our deacons. And when we've discussed this hypothetical scenario, the consistent most common responses that I've heard from people is they'd expect a decline in giving somewhere between 20 and 30%. Well, what we've noticed, over the past few months, if we looked at these quarters of giving, comparing them to the year before, is that our church has actually seen anywhere between a decrease in 9% and 17% over that time. So granted, that's way better than we probably would have projected as we were gathering together a year ago, but it's still a significant reality for us. And it's, it's something that when I shared this first with our team after we saw our year-end giving numbers and walked them through it, that I made clear to them, this is not your fault. We have a generous church. You can't have the kind of history we have as a congregation. You can't have the facilities we have. You can't do the type of ministry that we do without generous people investing for the sake of the kingdom of God right here. And I love our team. They are responsible. They're frugal. But all of these realities are met with a -a once-in-a-century pandemic that has upended everyone. And in fact, we're not alone as a church feeling the financial effects of this. You'll notice a few slides on the screens as I work our way through it. What we found as we look around the country is that 41% of churches have seen some sort of decline in giving. That includes 26% of them that have seen 10% or more of a decrease in giving. Uh, In addition to that, we also have seen churches... 48% of them say that the economy has negatively impacted them in some way, and perhaps most alarming, one out of every five churches is concerned they might not even be able to keep their doors open within the next 18 months because of some of these financial shortfalls. So how are churches addressing it? Well, you'll see that About 65% of them have received PPP loans just like the one we did that's been now fully forgiven for us here at Central. And as they're making plans for their budget, 48% of them are projecting a flat budget while 52% of them are projecting a decrease. And this isn't just affecting churches around the country, it's also affecting other churches right here in the Brazos Valley. I've talked to other pastors who are seeing giving declines in our area of 10% or more, but I want you to understand something. What we're dealing with as a church when it comes to our financial situation is not just a simple problem, but a compound problem. Yes, the simple reality is that COVID has upended the economy in ways that have led to a decline in giving. But if you were to look back over the last decade in our church's giving, what you would find is that nine of the last 11 years, we have budgeted, anticipating more income, more giving than we've actually received. Now, that's not bad. That's not a problem. That's entirely normal in the church and the nonprofit space. But what, what the reality is, is that makes us uniquely vulnerable when a situation like this occurs. So what are we seeing in the pattern of our giving you're going to notice a chart up on the screen that compares last year's giving to this year's giving and it just gives you a window of the trajectory of where we've come from and where we see ourselves going our budget for this year is right at about six million dollars in anticipated giving but with the with the giving that we've seen so far in the first four months of the fiscal year and the trends that we're seeing in decline in giving what we're currently projecting is that we will see something between 4.7 and $5.1 million actually come in this year unless the Lord changes the heart of his people. So what have we been doing about that as a team? As we've met over the last few weeks, we've gone through our budget. We've asked ourselves the question, how might we make adjustments that would Narrow some of that gap. And so, some of the things that we've done, you'll see on the screen, is we've been able to combine together some projected cuts over the rest of this fiscal year that we believe will save us $600,000. That will include things like leaving unfilled positions unfilled and reducing the amount of money that we're paying on our loan debt, uh, but still paying the note that we're paying. It means making Cuts in some of our ministry areas, but doing all this in a way that doesn't require us to sacrifice the mission and the ministry that God has called us to here as a congregation. But here's the reality: even with that 600,000 dollars of savings, if you're looking at anywhere between 4.7 and 5.1 in giving, that means that we have a gap to close between 250 and 650,000 dollars as a congregation. Some of our church staff have been in other churches that when they've hit financial distress, they've withheld that information from the congregation. They've kept it quiet. They've gone and made the hard decisions about making personnel cuts or other things and didn't tell the church about it until it was too late, until those decisions were made. And once the congregation became aware of the need they responded with giving that might have reshaped the decisions that that church chose to make. We don't want to make that mistake here. So I'm coming to you this morning to be open, transparent, honest about where we sit financially so that you can see it, so that as we come to this text, we can hear God's heart for our finances and that we can pray through how we might respond. Now, if you want to understand more information about what's going on, I want to encourage you to check out our website. On Wednesday night, Chuck Vester, our administrator, and I spent our entire Wednesday night equipped class walking through these numbers in more depth than what I can give you this morning and answering questions from people. You can come talk to Chuck and me afterwards or throughout the week. But for now, I want to turn our hearts to Matthew 6. And I want us to see the way that Jesus speaks about our finances. And as we turn there, I want you to know, if you're a guest with us today, we're not a church that always talks about money, but you know what we are? We're a family, and families sometimes have to have complicated conversations. We see in Scripture that Jesus talks about money all the time because he knows it's a window into our heart. In fact, nearly 40% of his parables have some reference to money. There are over 250 verses in just the Gospels that discuss the subject of money. If the church is unwilling to talk about finances, we're probably the only place that's unwilling to do so. So notice the way that Jesus speaks to us about our money this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 6, and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you in this moment, we're asking that you would reshape our hearts, that our lives would not be marked by the clenched fists of covetousness, but instead with the open hands of generosity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's think about what's happening here. Jesus is speaking. This is what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. He is giving some of his most extended instruction to his disciples. And at the center of this message... What does he devote the most time to of everything he addresses? He speaks to money. He talks about finances. And why is that? It's because it reveals important things about us. And as we work our way through the text this morning, what we're going to find is that Jesus is going to show us that money reveals three important things about us. And notice the first one right here in the passage that we've already read. What Jesus will show us first is that your money reveals your heart. Your money reveals your heart. And so as he works his way through this section, he prompts us with three questions that can help us diagnose our hearts when it comes to money. And you'll see the first one back in verses 19 through 21 when he's prompting us with the question, where is your treasure? So he gives us two options. He says, your treasure is either on earth or in heaven. And the reason he tells us in verses 19 and 20 that we shouldn't put our treasure on earth is that it won't last. He says where moth and rust destroy. And he says it is often under threat. It's where thieves break in and steal, but instead he tells us to put our treasure in heaven. Why? Because it will last forever and it cannot be destroyed. Jesus is showing us that the location of our treasure Reveals the motivation of our hearts. That's why back in verse 21, he tells us, For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. One of the best windows you can get into somebody's heart for God is to study their bank account because where you put your money shapes where you put your heart. But there's another question here in verses 22 and 23 when Jesus asks us, Where are you setting your eyes? He begins to speak about the eyes, how they are a lamp to the body, and he contrasts those that are bright in light with those that are in darkness. And he reminds us of this reality that where you set your eyes shapes where you set your heart. And where you set your heart shapes where you set your money. And the question that each of us wrestle with is where do we set our eyes? Do we set our eyes on our circumstances or on our Savior. I want you to understand where we're setting our eyes as a church. When you give to us financially, it supports the ministries that we carry out. Just yesterday, we had over 600 kids playing central sports basketball in the the FLC. And I heard the story this week about one of those children, a girl who's playing on a third-grade team who, during the devotional in her uh, team's practice a couple of weeks ago the coach talked about the gospel and it led her to go home and start asking questions of her parents and through those conversations with their parents God used that to open her not eyes to her need of a savior and because of a seed planted right there in that gym on one of the weekday nights a few weeks ago God has welcomed the new child into his kingdom isn't that amazing That's where we set our eyes here. Jesus is questioning us. Where are we setting our eyes when it comes to his provision in our life? And it brings us to this third question that you'll see there at the end of this section in verse 24 when he asks us, who is your master? Jesus tells us no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and And money. Maybe you remember this show that's been out for some time known as Hoarders. You watch the show and it takes you into the homes of people that just can't give up their possessions. It's surrounded by all sorts of things. They might have lots of animals or they might keep lots of Christmas decorations or they might just have tons of trash that's all over the place. You see it and for many of us we can look at it and say how could someone get to that point in their life? Can't they see that they don't need what they're keeping? Can't they see that what they have is actually holding them back from what they need? But what Jesus is putting in front of us this morning is that there's the same kind of danger in each one of our hearts when it comes to finances, that we can cling, we can hold on to, we can keep, we can take those things for ourselves, and what happens is money becomes our master. It's what guides and governs our lives instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is warning about the danger that we might spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need, to impress people we don't know. That's the danger of making money your master. But he tells us we cannot serve both God and money. This imagery there in the original language would bring things from the slave trade, that we have a master and no slave can have two masters. There can only be one. And when it comes to finances, the the Bible is crystal clear that God desires to be our master. That's why when you look through the sweep of Scripture and you see the pattern for giving that's laid out there all the way back into the Old Testament, you see from even the book of Genesis this pattern of setting aside a tithe as an offering to the Lord. That the first 10% of everything we receive is to be wholly devoted to God, our first and our best and when you move into the new testament you see no rejection of that principle instead when you watch the early church like in the book of acts what you find is them being even more generous than that giving to god for the sake of others and for the sake of his mission that is the pattern of the one for whom god is their master so why is it how could it be That when you look at the national averages of those who give in churches it averages out to about two to three percent of their income what is Jesus prompting us with the question who is our master is it because some of us are seeking to to uh, follow two masters and to have two masters both God and money that is what he is putting in front of us in this moment and as he raises these questions about us financially it may be raising questions for you about the finances of our church. How did we get here? Well, this wasn't like what happened to GameStop this week with the sudden up and down in their stock prices. This was an ongoing, steady decline in giving, most likely that resulted because many of us couldn't meet in person, and we couldn't do it as frequently, and there weren't those prompts to give. Also, while others of us are being affected by uh, the economy in terms of our finances— It may also raise for you the question, well, should we be worried? By no means. The response to this reality in the life of our church is not one of fear, but of faith. We shouldn't be worried, but we should be intentional. Because the Lord is in control, and that's why Jesus is going to speak to a second reality. Beginning in verse 25, what we're going to find here is that next He tells us your money reveals your fears. So look back at what he says, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Oh, you of little faith. Jesus shows us here that our money doesn't just reveal our hearts. It also reveals our fears. And we're living in a time period where there is constant uncertainty and worry around us, whether it's from the uh, COVID or civil unrest or the transition of political power. We can sense that apprehension all around us, but perhaps nowhere do we feel it more directly than when it comes to money. When you get that unexpected medical bill when you didn't read the fine print and it cost you more than you expected when you had that unexpected breakdown in a car when your paycheck has now been replaced by an unemployment check jesus speaks to our fears here and he speaks to them in verse 25 with the command that he uses six different times in this section do not be anxious If we're being honest this morning, if you're anything like me, that sounds a lot easier to hear than it actually is to do. I remember back in 2008 when the financial crisis hit, I was working at a seminary at the time, and I had uh, to endure the difficult news of finding out that my position at the school was going to be eliminated. And I had to wrestle for a period of time with that uncertainty of how might the Lord take care of me? How might he sustain me? And maybe you feel that type of angst and uncertainty right now, whether it's for your individual finances or as you're hearing about what's going on in the life of our church. And what happens is we become more intimate with our anxieties than we do with God. They rest and they dwell on us in ways that he doesn't. But what Jesus does is he confronts these, uh, these tendencies towards anxiety by destroying some of the myths that they raise in our lives. And you'll see the first one in 25 and 26 when he tells us that, that he is destroying the myth that anxiety will solve our problems. We think that the more we worry about something, the more likely it is that we can fix it. But the reality is just the opposite, isn't it? It often makes things worse. And he tells us there in that moment, we need to remember a few realities. Verse 25 shows us how we need to remember what life is all about. Notice how he says there is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. These are essential things that we need. But Jesus is saying, don't lose sight that our lives are more than what is before our eyes. He also tells us there that we need to remember how much God values us. He tells us in verse 26, look at these birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? They can't produce. They have to scavenge, and yet God meets their needs. And if he does that for something that is insignificant in his eyes, how much more will he do that for the one who is made in his image? He goes on to address another myth in verse 27 when he shows us and he addresses the myth that anxiety saves your time. We feel like the more we worry, the more it will free up our time to address the things that we worry about. When in fact, what we find instead is that worry often eats away at our time. It pulls us away from doing the exact same things that would allow us to address the troubles that we're in. And he, he says there in verse 27, in the form of a question, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? imagine if we were to open up the calendars for each one of you sitting in this room, there's not a single one of you that could point to me to a block of time this week coming up that you've already marked out to worry. We don't schedule it. All right, 4 o'clock Monday, I think I can squeeze it in right before my afternoon workout. That's not the way it happens, does it? Instead, it takes over our time. Even when we're doing other things, it eats into our hearts and into our minds. And what Jesus is reminding us of here is that there is this tendency to think that if we think about it more, it will save us time. It will give us a better chance of a breakthrough. But instead, it can't even add a single hour to your life which goes right along with this next myth that we see in 28 through 30 when he tells us about the myth that anxiety can secure our provision. We think that the more we worry, the more likely we are to get what we need. But instead, he shows us a different picture. He speaks here of the lilies of the field, how they are arrayed in beauty that surpasses even Solomon. And yet they will die not long after that, why is it that god takes such amazing care of them and yet we trust we struggle to trust that he will take care of us when he compares him to solomon there was no one greater in splendor no one greater in the way that they displayed these realities and yet god is telling us that the way he cares for these lilies of the field is nothing compared to the way that he will care for you and for me that's why at the end of this section It finishes by pointing out to them, oh, you of little faith. When Jesus speaks there, he's saying that the root issue is not our finances, but our faith. It's not our treasure, but our trust. That the presence of worry is the absence of faith. And can I just be honest with you for a minute as your pastor? I'm wrestling with some of those same uncertainties and anxieties right now, even having this conversation with you. You what, What if we talk about money and some people get turned off by that and they don't want to be here anymore? What if we pull back the veil on the financial patterns that are coming and they want to blame our team or even me rather than recognizing the effect of the pandemic? What if we put this need in front of the congregation, invite them to respond over the next several weeks and the Lord doesn't meet our need and we have to make the difficult decision about staff cuts? I recognize in my own heart today that when Jesus says, There, O oh, you of little faith, he's not just speaking to us, he's speaking to me. And what he does is he meets us in those moments by giving us glimpse, glimpses of his grace. So even this past week as we've begun to share this with the leadership of our church we've had one family come to us and say pastor we've begun to talk about this and our family is going to write an additional one uh, one time $10,000 check to the church we've had another leader come to us during that time and say to us hey we've been giving faithfully 10% as the bible instructs us but the lord is blessing us and over this next period of time we're going to give 20% to the church for a season and you see in just those little glimpses of grace That God is meeting us in our doubts and overwhelming them, recognizing that the only thing that we can trust more than our uncertainties is his goodness in the midst of hardship. And that's why this, this passage ends with us with a third thing that money reveals about us when it shows us that your money reveals your priorities. So if you'll finish the passage with me in verses 31 through 34, here's how Jesus says it. So in this passage, Jesus is showing us that that money reveals our heart. It reveals our fears, but it also reveals our priorities. Again, he starts here in verse 31 with that same command. as back in verse 25. Do not be anxious. And why might we be anxious? Well, verse 31 is speaking about all the, the basics of life, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. And when we hear those things... We hear them through the lens of the first world problem of 21st century Americans. Like he's asking us when it says, what shall we eat? Are we going to have barbecue or Mexican food today after church? Are we going to drink Coke Zero or Dr. Pepper? Are we going to wear our blue shirt or our white shirt? We, we see it through the lens of Jesus is talking about the uncertainties of the choices that we have. But what's actually occurring in this text is that when Jesus speaks these questions, he's not talking about choices. He's talking about if there will be anything to eat or drink or to put on at all. What will I eat, God? What what can we drink? What are we going to wear? We have nothing. Will you provide for us? That's the kind of desperation he's speaking to. That's the desperation he's calling us to. Will we be the type of people that recenter our hearts on his priorities, trusting that he will meet even our most basic of needs? And when we see what he's doing here, he speaks to several realities that reshape our perspective. And when you look back at verse 32, you see that our view of money should be different from that of the world. He tells us, For the Gentiles seek after these things, that the world around us prizes their possessions. And what happens as a result of that is stress begins to define society it takes root in our souls in a way that we struggle to trust him but when we realize that god has set us apart from the world it reshapes our priorities he also shows us how our god can be trusted so look back at verse 32 he says your heavenly father knows that you need them all for a summer while i was here in college i served as a camp counselor for uh, boys uh, that were anywhere between 10 and 12 years old, and they'd show up to our overnight camp, and when they began to unpack their bags, the moment that they unzipped them, you could tell who packed it. Was it them or their parents? So if the child packed it themselves, it was pretty sparse. It was messy. It was often missing something important. But if a sweet, loving mom packed it for them, she had the whole checklist out of that, everything that they needed. It was precisely put away. It even had things they didn't realize that they needed at the moment, but were just what it required to make it through the week. Notice the way that Jesus speaks about how God provides for us here. He doesn't say he's a business partner making deals that he will fulfill. He doesn't say he's a government Bureaucrat providing resources to those who require them? How does he speak of them in verse 32? He's a heavenly father who knows our needs even better than us. And if that's true, then we can trust him as we seek to allow him to reshape our priorities. And that culminates in what he's telling us in verse 33, that our kingdom is not of this world. He tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean seek nothing else, but it means that your first and best energies and attention are going to be focused on the kingdom of God, that kingdom that the scripture unfolds for us, the one that was ruptured in Eden by our sin, the one that was rescued by Christ in our salvation, and the one that is coming again in the future that we seek first, his kingdom and his righteousness. And when we look to God, we can trust that he is looking out for us. Notice the way this passage ends there. Jesus tells us the future may be uncertain, but God's faithfulness is sure. He says tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, Jesus is reminding us that God will give us this day our daily bread. One of the troubling things about finances is that financial debt that we experience, it often causes angst and uncertainty perhaps even guilt or shame. It's just a small picture of the spiritual debt that all of us outside of Christ have before God. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death, that each one of us deserves his judgment, and that angst and fear and anxiety that we feel about finances in this world pales in comparison to what we should feel before a God that we have sinned against. But in his love, God has given us his greatest treasure. He has sent his one and only son from heaven to make a way for you and me to offer that spiritual redemption, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might experience the true riches of salvation. And when we recognize that central family, we need to ask ourselves the question, where do we go from here? You know, I've seen these... Uh, Televangelists that are out there and they offer these prayer cloths for sale. And I was thinking with COVID, maybe what we need to do is get some prayer mass together, COVID protection and spiritual protection all in one for one low donation to the church. What do you think? I see God on the move here at central. When we came back together back in June, there was about 500 of us split between two services You fast forward to december when we made the announcement that we were going to bring our two services back to one we were at about 600 maybe 700 on a week at that point well in the last just over a month the lord has nearly doubled our numbers where last week we had almost 1400 people here and i say that not to make a big deal about the numbers i say that to show you that God is proving himself faithful and gathering together his people again. And I believe that the same God that is being faithful and gathering his people together again is the same God that will be faithful and gathering us together to give again. And so what I'm asking you to do is with your families over the next two weeks to prayerfully consider how the Lord might be leading you to help us meet the needs that I've put in front of you that we would capture a Matthew 6 heart for the opportunities before ourselves as a congregation. And then we're going to come back in two weeks from now on February 14th. And as part of the Sunday morning service, we're going to have a time of commitment as a congregation to respond in whatever the way the Lord is going to lead us. And then fast forward 10 days later at our Wednesday night gathering that week, we're going to have a celebration time. Because I trust that God is going to meet us in this moment through your faithfulness and your finances. And we want to celebrate what he's going to do in this period of time, beginning on uh, February 24th. There was a college student that went to an ATM to pull out some money a few years back. And when he pulled out the money, he didn't realize that he was going to hit the jackpot. Because one of these uh, $20 bills that he received is what's, called, what's known as an error banknote. It had a mistake on it. So if you pull out your $20 bill uh, from your billfold, you'll notice that it's normal, every one you see. But each one of these, there's paper that this ink is printed upon. And on one of the dollar bills that he received, the paper had a sticker on it. If you go to the grocery store and you get some bananas, it might have a sticker on there from Del Monte Bananas. Well, it had Del Monte affixed to it right here. And that image being there was then printed over by the ink. And now that note has become known as the Del Monte note. He took that $20 and put it on eBay a few months later back in 2004 and sold it for $10,000. Then a couple years later in 2006, the person that had it then sold it for $25,000. And the Del Monte note is now back in the news again this month because it just sold at auction as the most valuable currency ever purchased at auction for $396,000. Think about what happened. You took something that was common, ordinary, normal, but when it was imprinted with an image that was unique, it multiplied its value. And what Jesus is reminding us of this morning is that that same reality is true when it comes to our finances. That when the money that he provides for us is imprinted with the heart of Jesus, he can multiply it. We saw him multiply the fruit in the garden. We saw him multiply the manna in the wilderness. We saw him multiply the loaves and the fishes on the mountainside. And I believe he'll do exactly that for us, central family. Let's pray together. Father, we're coming to you with open hands, praying that in this moment that you would unite and not divide us, that you would focus and not distract us, that you would fuel us with a confidence in your goodness and your provision and a hope that our best days are yet ahead. Lord, we see you at work all around us. We know that you are here in our midst and we are simply coming together as one, asking for you to work in the hearts of your people, to open those clenched fists of covetousness and replace them with open hands of generosity so that we might be faithful in the next chapter of ministry here. And we're trusting that you will do even more than we can ask or imagine by the power of your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in just a moment, we're gonna enter into a time of response where we stand and sing, and as we do that, there will be ministers gathered here at the front, and maybe you've come to realize that you have a spiritual debt before God that you want to know how to be set free from. We'd love to share with you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Maybe you're ready to walk into membership. You know we're doing a membership workshop in a couple of weeks, and you wanna take this first step towards that end. We want to walk with you through how to do that. Or maybe you just wanna come and bring these things before the Lord in prayer. In whatever way that God leads you in this time, let's stand and sing together as the Spirit leads us.